The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Please pray with me now. Fathers, we have had the opportunity to sing songs that meditate on the death of your son. It's a sober meditation. Sober meditation. And it is good for us, O Lord, to meditate deeply and to understand the death of Jesus on our behalf. And so I pray that now you would give us the gift of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this place. For it is his unique work in this world to exalt Jesus to the highest place in our minds, our hearts, and our estimation based on the scripture that he himself inspired. And so we pray now that there would be an anointing of the Spirit on me, on my words, and then on all of our hearts so that we can understand the things that we have just heard and that these truths would burn in our hearts within us, transforming us and enabling us to live, to walk in newness of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 71, verse 15 says, my mouth will tell of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. Though I know not its measure. All of us infinitely underestimates what our salvation cost Jesus Christ. We underestimate the gravity of our sins and the holiness of God and the heat of his wrath, his righteous wrath against us for our sins. We underestimate all of these things, even if we've been Christians many years, even if we love Jesus we underestimate what our salvation cost Jesus. This is a Good Friday observance. For myself, I was raised Roman Catholic, and Holy Week observances were a big part of my spiritual formation growing up. Good Friday. I remember being an altar boy and doing something called the Stations of the Cross, and we would go from place to place in our church. There were uh, stained glass depictions of the final hours of Jesus' life, and there would be readings at each of those. And, you know, we Baptists, I think, have rightly rejected the elaborate system of holy days and the holy year that um, was handed down from medieval Catholicism on even to the present day. Official for Baptists to pull aside in the middle of a week, work week like this one, and to focus on Good Friday on the death of Christ. Now, certainly, here in this church, we preach Christ crucified every week. It's not a week that goes by that I don't mention the death of Christ for our sins, and it's as it should be. Yet, a Good Friday service like this gives us a chance to slow down, to pause, and to look at specific details connected with the death of Christ that ordinarily we wouldn't mention. And so this evening we're going to be looking at uh, just some details from the death of Jesus 
from the Gospel of John, the account you just heard read, John 19. And I want to assert right away how important, in particular, John's testimony is. John's account of the death of Christ, because he was an actual eyewitness of Jesus' death. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. As you just heard a moment ago, he was standing right there watching Jesus die. And so he adds some specific details to our knowledge of the death of Christ that we could have no other way. One of those details is the fact that the soldiers determined that Jesus was already dead, greatly to their surprise. But to confirm it, one of the soldiers drove a spear up into Jesus' side. And when he did, blood and water came flowing out. Now John strongly emphasized this, and he strongly emphasized the eyewitness testimony that that happened. He underscores it in verse 35 of John 19. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true and he knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. That's very serious words connected with this flow of blood and water. The reason this is so important among other reasons is that every aspect of Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection from the grave are established in the Gospels as historical fact. Historical fact. And the role of eyewitness testimony is vital to that. Luke begins his Gospel with these words. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Let me say that again. The reason Luke wrote his gospel based on careful investigation of the testimony of eyewitnesses is so that we would know the certainty of the things we have been taught. He means historical certainty, the accuracy of it. John in his epistle, 1 John 1.1, speaks of this also, his role as an eyewitness. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And we proclaim this eyewitness testimony so that you also may have fellowship with us and with God. It's all based on eyewitness testimony. Peter writes the same thing in 2 Peter 1, 16. He said, we did not follow cleverly invented myths when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Cleverly invented myths, skillfully woven fiction. Peter said, we didn't do that. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection are not cleverly devised fables or myths. They're not fiction. Or even spiritual parables, which when we read them are moved or moved morally and spiritually and we can live a better life. No. 
That's not what the Gospels are about. It's not what the New Testament is about. Some of you may have heard of a place called Narnia. It's a fantasy world crafted by an author named C.S. Lewis and written into his books called The Chronicles of Narnia, a fantasy world that four British children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, reached through a wardrobe, a wooden closet where the clothes are kept, and they go further and further back, and suddenly they're in another world, Narnia. Well, readers of Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia can derive all kinds of spiritual benefit from the books. Indeed, they have for for decades now. But I certainly hope all of you know it's fiction. It's absolutely cleverly invented myths, fables, which are written for a spiritual purpose. Same thing with Tolkien's fantasy world of Middle Earth with the Shire and Gondor and Mirkwood and Mordor and all those places. They're all fantasy locations. And uh, Aragorn and Gandalf and Frodo are fictitious characters. I hope you all know that. Some people are so into this, these worlds that they can forget and it gets blurry. But that's cleverly invented fables. It's not true. But the accounts we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are based on eyewitness testimony. They're history. Works of historical facts based on the sober testimony of eyewitnesses. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul testifies concerning the resurrection of Christ from the dead that if Christ had actually not been physically raised from the dead, he said, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. In other words, if this whole thing that we're talking about tonight is a cleverly devised fable, you shouldn't have come here tonight. I shouldn't be up here talking. My preaching is useless, and so is your Christian faith. It's a strong statement. More than that, Paul says, we have been found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. It actually happened. And then a few verses later, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. That's how important history is to Christianity. So it really matters a ton whether or not Christ really lived, whether or not Christ really said and did the things the Gospels record that he said and did, whether or not Christ really died on the cross, and whether or not Christ really actually rose from the dead. So the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written based on the testimonies of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus personally. Now, over the centuries, many false teachers have arisen to trouble the church with questions about these very things. Early on, there were some false teachers called docetus, based on the Greek word dokeo, to to seem, that Jesus seemed human, but he really wasn't. Others raised questions about Jesus' death. Yeah, even in the 19th century and beyond, uh, some devised something called the swoon theory that Jesus actually fainted on the cross. He just seemed dead. Some theologically liberal scholars have questioned the gospel records as faulty because they contain miracles. 
they look on them as religious myths. And so scholars like a man named Rudolf Bultmann tried to go through and demythologize the New Testament, strip it of all of its clearly, obviously, mythological aspects, miracles, and uh, embarked on the quest for the historical Jesus. Can I just shut that down right now? You want the quest for the historical Jesus? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's the historical Jesus. You don't have to go any further. It's all of it history based on eyewitness accounts. And that includes the Apostle John in the account you just heard read, John 19. John was standing there. Watched it happen. And he testified that it happened. And based on these gospel records, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have a strong sense of the truthfulness, the absolute certainty of what we have been taught. Jesus actually lived fully God and fully human. Jesus actually died. He actually was dead on the cross. He literally died. And the effusion of water and blood from his side proves it. And Jesus actually rose from the dead, physically, bodily, on the third day. Therefore, our sins are actually forgiven. We ourselves will actually be raised from the grave in bodies like Christ's. We, we ourselves will actually live forever in heaven. That's how important this history is. Assurance, certainty, a sense of the certainty of the things you have been taught. That's what we get from meditating deeply on these details, the historical details. So the account of these details gives us an intensification of our awareness of these truths. And the account of Jesus' death in John 19 gives us that certainty. The evidence is that Jesus died at exactly the right time that day. I mean, within seconds, he died at exactly the right time to fulfill prophecy to fulfill the plan of salvation that God had made for sinners all over the world in every generation, even from before the foundation of the world. Certainly, there were events, human events, that led up to his trial, his conviction, and his execution. Satan did, in fact, put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. So Satan had a role. Judas Iscariot did, in fact, conspire with the chief priests and the teachers of the law to hand Jesus over to them. Uh, this he did by identifying Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with a kiss. The chief priests and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees did, in fact, arrest Jesus. They did, in fact, bring him to the house of Annas, the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, did, in fact, condemn Jesus to death on the testimony. It all happened. They did, in fact hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, and then they pressured, they effectively pressured Pilate so that he would finally give in to them and murder an innocent man, a man he knew was innocent. Pilate did, in fact, condemn Jesus to death, turn Jesus over to the soldiers, who did, in fact, mock him and flog him, spit on him and beat him. All of that's true. 
And they did, in fact, lead him away to Golgotha where they crucified him by nailing his hands and his feet to the cross with two other men, two robbers, one on his right, the other on his left. Yes, yes, yes. These human actors, all of them did these human things and they are accountable for what they did, held accountable. However, all of them were merely servants of Almighty God, carrying out a plan that had been crafted in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. Every one of those details had been planned out before God said, let there be light. Peter said this in his great Pentecost sermon in Acts 2. He said, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by signs and wonders and miracles which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death. Nailing him to the cross. Do you hear that? It was handed over to you by God. By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Carrying out a plan that had been crafted before the world began. They say the same thing a couple of chapters later in Acts 4. As they're praying together, the church is praying together. Persecution's about to ramp up and they're getting ready for it by praying. This is what they said. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. I mean, it couldn't be clearer. They were following a script, though they didn't know the script or know that they were following a script. The soldiers gambled for Jesus' clothes so that Scripture would be fulfilled. The soldiers didn't get up that day saying, I think we'll fulfill Scripture today by gambling for someone's clothes. They just gambled for clothes because they wanted them. But the Scripture says, so this is what the soldiers did because that's what the prophecy said they should do. So all of this was crafted in the mind of God before God said, let there be light. Before the foundation of the world, God determined to crush his son to death to save sinners like you and me from hell. That's what God decided to do for us. And he established prophecies through the Holy Spirit, through prophets. One of the Virgin Mary, so that we could identify, triangulate on this one person of all the billions that have ever lived. This one man is the savior of the world. The prophecies identify him. One of the most important was animal sacrifice, which was established, I believe, in the Garden of Eden and then carried out multiple times with the patriarchs, Noah after the flood, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They all did animal sacrifice, but then especially it was Moses at the time of the 10th plague, the, the dreadful 10th plague, the plague on the firstborn, the night of the Passover, and, and each Jewish family would, would set aside a lamb, a Passover lamb, and there were certain stipulations about it, etc. But the laws in Exodus 12, 46 about the Passover lamb was that not a single bone of the lamb would be broken. Exodus 12, 46, it must be eaten inside one house, take none of the meat outside the house, do not break any of the bones. Same thing in Numbers uh, 9, 11, and 12 about the Passover. They are to eat the lamb together with unleavened bread and bitter any of it till morning 
or break any of its bones. When they celebrate the Passover, they must follow the regulations. Jesus died at just the right instant to fulfill this prophecy. Now, the thing with crucifixion is it's, it's designed for cruelty. It's a very cruel death. It's a very vicious death because there's nothing immediately killing the victims. And they've been, they were known to linger for days on the cross, days. When Jesus was dead, Pilate was shocked that he was already dead. The, the Jewish authorities, because it was a, a, a Passover, it was a high Sabbath, they knew that action had to be taken on these three men or they would linger all night. And they didn't want them on the cross all night. So Jesus died just in the nick of time to avoid having his bones broken. And he had the power to do this. Jesus uniquely had power over his physical death, his physical life, uniquely. He said to Pilate, the reason I entered the world was to testify to the truth. None of you can make such a statement. Why did you choose to be born? What was your purpose in entering the world? None of us can say that. We don't have any purpose. We're, we're born. But Jesus chose to enter the world. And in the same way, he chose to die. And if he hadn't chosen to die, he would never have died. He said this plainly in John chapter 10, 17, 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again, this command I receive from my father. That's an utterly unique speech that only Jesus could make. No one can kill me if I don't want to die. But I'm actually laying down my life. And so at just the right time, Jesus gave up his spirit, died, gave up his spirit of his own choice. In John 19, 28 through 30, which you just heard, I'll read it again. It says, later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I mean, none of us can do that. You can't just pillow your head on your chest and just die. But Jesus had that power to give up his spirit. Now, if he had died even just a few moments later, his bones would have been smashed by the soldiers. As it says in verse 31 through 33, now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross, crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, it was a clear Jewish law against leaving dead bodies on a tree overnight. Deuteronomy 21, it says, If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day 
because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So Jesus was under a curse by being hung on the cross. As Paul points out in Galatians, he was made a curse for us. We deserve, because of our sins, we deserve to be cursed by God. Jesus took that curse on himself. And so these Jewish legalists are trying to avoid the defilement of the Passover by allowing these dead bodies to remain on the tree overnight. The soldiers, in conformity with this Jewish demand, brought probably a huge hammer, mallet or something like that, smashed the legs of the first man, unspeakable cruelty, so that he couldn't push up. So also the other man smashed his bones, probably sent the body into shock, greatly accelerated death because he... They couldn't push up, they couldn't breathe anymore, and soon they were dead. But the soldiers came to Jesus, and these were expert executioners. They knew he was dead. There's no doubt. And they were surprised, I'm sure, because it's just a short time. But Jesus had fulfilled all the prophecies that he could while still alive, and he pillowed his head on his chest and gave up his spirit. And in this way, the prophecy was fulfilled. Not a bone will be broken. Now, the actual physical cause of Jesus' death, I think, is more violent than we can possibly imagine. And it is possible that when that soldier shoved the spear up into Jesus' side and the blood and water flowed out, it gives evidence of a level of internal violence inside Jesus that is unspeakable beyond anything we could possibly comprehend. Verse 34, it says, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, there's so much discussion about this blood and water. And there are many themes that one could pick up here. So, while I was sitting there, I picked up the hymnal and looked up and found the hymn, Rock of Ages. You've heard that hymn before. Rock of Ages by Augustus Toplady. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side, which flowed, be of sin the double cure. Save me from wrath and make me pure. The blood taking away the wrath of God, the water cleansing, as it speaks in the book of Titus, being cleansed from our sins. So I think it's a valid meditation that Augustus Toplady does there. But I want to focus just on the significance of the blood and water physically. I was listening to a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones who, before he was a preacher, was a royal physician. He was a doctor. He also cited research done by other medical experts that this flow of water and blood was evidence that Jesus died of a ruptured heart. A ruptured heart, that the actual muscle of Jesus' heart was shredded. There's reasons for this. It has to do with the pericardium and, and what happens after death and all that. I'm not a doctor, and I'm intimidated to be in front of doctors. I actually called a doctor friend as I was writing the sermon, and he panned this whole thing. He said, we don't really know. So here I am saying, I don't really know if Jesus died of a ruptured heart. But one thing I do know When he was in Gethsemane, he was under such pressure that he sweat great drops of blood. 
And this is what Luke 22:44 says. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. What in the world is going on there? Except that I believe that God revealed the cup to him at levels and dimensions he had never seen before, and it knocked him to the ground, and he was under intense mental, emotional, psychological, even physical anguish and pressure in Gethsemane, so much so that it seems there's evidence if he hadn't dispatched some angels to strengthen him, he might have died right there. What could this be other than the wrath of God and the separation, the relational separation between Jesus and the Father as our sin-bearing substitute that pushed him to a level of anguish and agony and grief that we can scarcely imagine. Jesus said in Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That cup represents the aggressive, pure, holy wrath of God that God feels rightly for all of the sins and violations of his holy laws that we have committed. That's the cup. Psalm 75, 8, it says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. That's the cup of God's wrath, judgment. Or again, Revelation 14, 10, it says, He too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. There is no man in history who understood the holy wrath of God better than the pure Son of God. And Jesus experienced, in a way we, and we use these expressions, but with Jesus, it's not just expression. Jesus experienced hell on earth for us. He drank hell for us so we wouldn't have to. So we wouldn't have to. And it cost him. It knocked him to the ground in Gethsemane. It put blood coming out of his pores. And maybe it shredded his heart. I do know this, that the effusion of water and blood proved that it stopped his heart. It stopped his heart. So at least this much we can say. The flow of blood and water proves that Jesus was actually dead. He died for us. And why is that important? Because we deserve to die. We deserve death. The wages of sin is death. And Isaiah 53 says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, the soldier shoved this spear up into Jesus' side, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, and John testified, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies, 
so that you also may believe. Believe what? What are you supposed to believe? Well, in the immediate case, believe that Jesus was actually human and that he was actually dead and that his death on the cross is an actual atonement for your sins. As Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what you're supposed to believe, that Jesus' death was for you, that you deserve to die, but Jesus died in your place so that you would not have to drink that cup. And whether his heart was actually literally ruptured or not, his heart was stopped. He was killed because of our sins. He died. And so what? So, therefore, we should have a sense of obligation. We should, first of all, realize if our sins did that to Jesus' body, how much should we hate sin? How much should we hate sin since that's what it cost Jesus? So, therefore, we should have a sense of indebtedness to Jesus resulting in personal holiness. Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You have been bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Do you know what that means? You're not your own. You've been bought and paid for. Jesus shed his blood for you. He owns you. Therefore, be holy. There it's talking about sexual purity. 1 Corinthians 6. Also, we should realize that Jesus bought us and therefore we should live for others. We should witness to others. We should evangelize others. This is the very point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 5. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So there's an obligation we have because Jesus died for us. We should stop living for ourselves and live for him and for others. And the context there is evangelism, that we're ambassadors and that we should share the gospel with lost people. Personal holiness and evangelism, both of them flowing from a sense of indebtedness or obligation we have to Jesus. Close with this story. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf was a German nobleman born in the year 1700 into a life of ease and privilege. He was a good man in that sense, a moral man, a Christian who was seeking to live a good life. But one day as a teenager, he was arrested by a powerful painting at an art museum in Dusseldorf. It was by Italian master Domenico Fetti, and it was called in the Latin, Ecce Homo, which is what Pontius Pilate said, behold the man, behold the man. And it depicted the crucified Christ in agony on the cross. At the bottom of the painting was this caption, all this I have done for you, now what will you do for me? And he stood there looking at this painting and was, and, and was dissolving in tears. He had a mystical, powerful experience right there looking at that painting. And he resolved that for the rest of his life he would serve Christ and serve others. And so he became the leader of the Moravians at Herrenhut, 
The Moravians were leaders in Protestant missions long before William Carey, sending missionaries to the West Indies, and a tremendous movement of Moravians. All of it flowed from his commitment to Christ. All this I have done for you, now what will you do for me? Christ's death does indeed pay our debts. So in that sense, we're free from debt. But there's a biblical sense in which we are indebted to. We're indebted to Christ. To live for him who died for us and to live for others who need him. As Isaac Watts put it so powerfully in his hymn, When I Survey the Wonders Cross, the final stanza, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the chance we have tonight to meditate uh, with more detail than usual on the, on the death of Jesus for us. Help us to hate sin. Help us to love Christ more than we do. Help us to live for his glory more than we do. Help us to be willing to put sin to death because we've learned to hate sin because it costs Jesus all of that agony. Help us to know that we are forgiven in ways that are deeper and richer than we can possibly imagine. And Lord, help us to go again and again to the cross for the power to live for others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.